Uh, if you have a Bible, we're in Matthew chapter 16 today. We're going to begin and read just a short little passage of Scripture that may be one of the more familiar ones and packs a pretty powerful punch and ask a pretty important question today that we're going to consider uh, as we get into our message. We are going to turn to John 1 later on, so if you want to put a bookmark there, not far from Matthew 16, so you probably can find your way there in a little bit on the fly, but if you'd like to be prepared, which if you're like me, you've got these little, um, little tabs all in your Bible and like to stick them here and there. Um, we're going to be in uh, John 1 in a little while, but we'll begin with Matthew chapter 16. Uh, God's Word is awesome. I love opening up, and there's always something fresh and powerful to say to us from any passage. Probably have opened up to Matthew 16 dozens of times in my ministry, and there's always a different message it seems like God brings from it. Um, so Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16 is going to be our opening text. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, or he asked them, but who do you say that I am? If that's not already highlighted or underlined in your Bible, it'd be a pretty good time to highlight that one. Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answers. He doesn't give us a chance to say, hey, here's my answer. Peter jumps in and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I wonder if Peter knew how profound and how memorable that statement and confession would be. I find inspiration in the weirdest places sometimes, but I like to think that, just, that it just speaks to how God is everywhere and that he brings to life in unexpected ways. Uh, he brings his word to life and brings meaning to things that maybe we would not expect. And I think that just ultimately proves even more how relatable he is, how approachable he is. Um, so I was in my closet the other day. Uh, well, our closet. Uh, Lindsay's gracious to give me a, a side of the closet. She, she has her own closet over in the other side of the room. But we have a walk-in closet. And I was trying to make it a bit more equitable uh, because uh, for a little while now, my side of the closet has spilled over into... Uh, her side as well. So um, I, now I think most of you can relate or unless you're just a minimalist and you're really someone that should be, should be applauded. Um, I think a lot of us have more clothes than we could ever wear. The older you get, the more you have that you don't want to get rid of because you might wear it sometime and you never end up wearing it. And, and maybe you're someone that never has more than, than you need and hey, that's great and God bless you and we should probably let you do this today. But um, for the time being, uh, I've got to finish. So I, specifically, my issue with, with the closet is um, I, I have I have a, I have a t-shirt problem. Um, in my, if you know me, then you probably would say that that's, that's understating the problem. Um, I have a t-shirt problem. By, by, by problem, I mean, I don't mean that I have a, a lack of t-shirts or I have size issues, uh, like I can't wear shirts anymore. I have too many of them. And I have so many that I bagged up about half of them a couple years ago or a year or so ago, and I sent some to the attic that I just couldn't part with for some reason that I'm never going to see them again, but I put them up there just to make myself feel better. I gave some to Goodwill, so I'm looking out and seeing if somebody shows up wearing one of my shirts because I gave away a, quite a few. So I, I sent half of them to the attic, half of them to Goodwill, or another part of them to Goodwill, and then I've still got 
way too many. So I've trimmed down my t-shirt pile, and that's not even counting about five, six years ago. I threw away half of them, and I still have more than I know what to do with. So I just have a lot of t-shirts. I like, I like to buy t-shirts, and I, you know, I find good deals, and I just can't, can't get rid of them. So it's, it's very excessive, uh, the t-shirt problem that I have. And I was in the closet, and I started thinking, and this is just crazy, you know, I hope you don't have these thoughts that I have, and, and I hope you don't go down rabbit trails like I go down with when I'm doing things. So I was in my closet trying to organize my t-shirts, and I started thinking, how t-shirts are really a modern thing. I mean, you go back 120 years ago, nobody knew what a t-shirt was. Uh, you know, for the, for the, for in, in, for in the grand scheme of things, outfits and, and what we wear um, for the thousands of years have kind of been the same until the, the, the dawn of the t-shirt. You know, people have been wearing some, kind of, some form of pants for a long, long time, uh, whether they're trousers or pantaloons or breeches, whatever, you, whatever they were called and however they looked. People have been wearing pants for as long as they're have been, you know, the ability to sew things together. And that's been a long time. Uh, people have been wearing button downs and coats and dresses and blouses for a long, long time. Um, so t-shirts are pretty, are a modern thing. And, and, and how modern, if you do a little research like I did because I was in my closet and I was just having this thought to myself, t-shirts are a new thing. I should do some research about t-shirts. Um, so I started doing some research about t-shirts and I, and I, I discovered um, that, uh, and I'm sure you came here this morning hoping you would learn the history of t-shirts. Um, so uh, I, I, you'll, you'll at least leave with something today. So the, the t-shirt was first manufactured during the Spanish-American War, which was around the turn of the century, 1900, 1900. You've heard the stories, Teddy Roosevelt, the whole, whole ordeal. So the t-shirt was manufactured during the Spanish-American War by the U.S. Navy for their sailors to wear when they were on deck during downtime. And then um, the different branches of military began to adopt the t-shirt. Uh, eventually, for the next 30, 40 years, um, you, you could tell a serviceman uh, from a mile away because they would be wearing t-shirts and nobody else knew what a t-shirt was or had ever saw anybody just walk around um, in, in, in what looked like something, an under you know, it was an undershirt is what it was called. Um, a serviceman would come home from the many different wars that took place in the first, you know, 20, 30 years of the, tw uh, of the 1900s, um, and they would be, uh, they would be in t-shirts, and everybody kind of picked up on the fact that servicemen, younger men, wear these solid white T-shirts. Now, F. Scott Fitzgerald coined the term t-shirt in one of his novels in the 1920s, um, as being kind of the staple of a young man's wardrobe. But uh, what really introduced t-shirts to the masses um, beyond just men in active service was the 1951 adaptation of everybody's favorite, A Streetcar Named Desire. Kenny, you were there on opening day, weren't you? <laughs> Not that. Uh, maybe some of, some of you might, might have saw it back in the day. A streetcar named Desire. Here's a guy wearing the classic white undershirt that the servicemen were wearing. And, and from this point forward, and if you study it, and again, and, and I'm sure you're interested in this, um, from this point forward, around the 1950s, um, white T-shirts became, became kind of the, the go-to fashion statement for, for you know, men in their 20s and 30s. Um, so from there, the floodgates opened, and what began as solid white or solid black undershirts led to the dawn of of modern t-shirts as we know it in the 1960s, graphic t-shirts and, and all the things that we uh, uh, you know, put on t-shirts today all started coming from the 60s forward, from, uh, from sports to, to bands and all this other stuff. Um, now, it was not without controversy. So maybe some of you were old enough to remember this or you're old enough, you've heard stories about this. T-shirts were frowned upon 
by the older generation in those days, associating them with the rebelliousness of the age. The 60s and 70s were a rebellious time for the younger folks in the country, right? Maybe some of you were those rebellious people. Shame on you. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but maybe you were part of that, right? And, and, you know, we look back and think, man, those were, those were simple times. Uh, but, but again, it's all relative. Um, the 60s and 70s were a different time, and, and people associated T-shirts with this rebelliousness. Uh, so shirts with band logos and sport logos and all sorts of logos, entertainment, um, that just didn't sit well with the more refined, buttoned-up types. And, and we can understand. New things are hard to sometimes to deal with. Um, now, I think we've gotten over that, but uh, I, I thought, I, I, but though I'm sure, I'm sure there's some out there that are still kind of maybe on the anti-T-shirt crowd, uh, T-shirt heel. Um, it's been said that T-shirts became so popular um, because it speaks to people's desires to express, the, express themselves. Now, whether it's a brand or a logo or just some simplicity that you want to express, um, the beauty of T-shirts is you can have a T-shirt that says anything or nothing, uh, but it says what you want to express. Uh, and, and they come in all shapes and sizes, all flavors and styles. So one fashion expert says that a t-shirt is really um, a, a really basic way of telling the world who and what you are. Never thought about that, have you? A t-shirt is the, really the simplest way of saying, here's who I am and here's what I'm into. Now, back to my closet. I was in my closet organizing my shirts. And, and funny thing about shirts, my shirts, is I have a section of t-shirts um, that I will leave the house in. And I have a lot of shirts that I don't ever wear outside of the house, not because they're offensive or anything. But I, I just, you know, there's some shirts that are kind of preppy and nice that I wear when I do things. And there's some shirts that have, you know, all kind of weird stuff on them from sports to entertainment that I just, I just don't ever wear out. And, and it's funny, some of the shirts that I really like that express kind of what I like the most, I never really wear outside the house. Um, and, and I think that that's how a lot of us are with the way that we dress. We have things that we wear at home and things that we wear outside of home. We have things that we go to work in, things that we lounge in, right? That's just kind of how it is. And, and, and it really tells a big difference um, into how we are outside and, and versus inside. And, and it's true, I think, for most of us. When we come home from work, we, uh, you know, we've been out and about and doing serious stuff. We come home from work and we often change our clothes to something that's more comfortable because we want to you know, enjoy ourselves and, and not be kind of stuffed up and whatever we had to, to wear for our jobs. Now, I, I guess you could say if people really wanted to know who we are, um, what we really like, they might not ever know it based on what they see and how we present ourselves to the world. That if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're trying to figure somebody out based on how they present themselves, how we present ourselves in the world, a lot of us, you would never really know what we're like or what we're really into, who we really are. Because we kind of wear a uniform. We kind of wear you know, stuff that doesn't necessarily reflect who we are. If they wanted to know, if we wanted them to know, they'd have to come home with us. They'd have to see us when we weren't as presentable. Um, whether it should be that way or not, that's our own business, right? You can wear whatever you want to wear, right? That, that, that's your choice. I, I just think it's profound and thought-provoking that that's something I think all of us can relate to. So, we're not here today to talk about t-shirts, thankfully. We're here to talk about a, a new series, a new study that we're doing called Reasons to Believe. And the whole point of this series, Reason to Believe, is knowing what story we have to tell when it comes to sharing our faith. Uh, we all know the importance of sharing our faith. You've heard a thousand sermons on, and you've read books, and you've heard, you've, you've heard people tell you, or you've read it in the Bible, it's important to share your faith. More importantly, the scriptures, the commands of Jesus. Everybody here probably can quote the Great Commission. Go you there 
therefore and preach to the nations, teach to the nations, make disciples of nations, um, of all people. We all know the Great Commission. So this is why this is not just another series on the imperative to go and make disciples. We already know that. We've heard that a time or two. This series is really inspired by the disconnect between our knowledge of this imperative and our obedience to it and our preparation to obey it. We all know how important it is to share our faith. Everybody here has heard sermons and agree with those sermons and, and made commitments to be a better witness, to make disciples, to share your faith. But all of us, I think there's a disconnect between what we know we should be doing and our obedience to doing it in our ability or our preparation to actually do it. It's necessary that we have this conversation because as much as we know how important it is to make disciples, we all fumble the ball, don't we, when it comes to actually doing it. It's not to shame anybody. It's just to say out loud what we already know and what we already feel awkward about. But, it, but it's just true. The average Christian who doesn't really engage in witnessing, who would never say that it's not important, you would never say there isn't an urgency, that that there's not a serious reason to go and share the gospel, Uh, they would say, and we would say, we're just not really good at it. And, And we really just don't know where to start at all. So there's this disconnect, there's this gap between what we know we should do and our ability to do it. And that's why most of the time when our churches have these big rallies and we do series and seasons focusing on witnessing and disciple making evangelism, we go to conferences and we read books and we go Bible studies, we all sit there and we all feel bad because we don't do what the Bible says we should do. We all agree we need to do better and try harder and focus more and we all shake our heads and we all pray prayers and we all commit to doing it better and, and let's just be honest, we leave or we move on and we really don't do anything. And we might try it once or twice, but we feel awkward and weird and people look at us funny and we maybe we, we cross up our words and all that's normal. All that's part of being a human. But isn't it true that we, we all make decisions to be a better witness and then something happens and we just say, I don't think that's for me. So this is what led me and our church into this series to hopefully help us know what story there is to tell whenever we get ready to tell it. And hopefully, it'll also inspire us to want to tell it. And that's the greater purpose of this whole series. As we stack up and highlight these reasons to believe, as we organize and emphasize why Christianity is the one and only way to God, and why there's so many reasons that make that undeniable. Hopefully, this will cause us to be even more grateful for our place in the story and more passionate about how other people can be in this story as well, how other people can be where we are in Christ. So we reviewed last week, there are three goals for this series, three simple goals that we would be more grateful or we'd be grateful for our place in the story, be grateful for how God has made us into his family, be mindful that there are many out there who are not Christians and that we as Christians are called to witness to them and that we might be watchful for the opportunities that God gives us to show them and to share our faith with them. So we're grateful for where we are. We're mindful that it's, there's a whole world out there that aren't where we are. And the Bible says we should go to them and we should be watchful for the opportunities God gives us to share our faith. The, uh, the apostle Peter came at us with this command. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in 
you. I'd like to think that the text we read this morning is what inspired Peter to to say, hey, we always got to be ready when somebody might ask us or say, hey, what do you believe or why do you believe? We've got to be ready to give our answer so that we might be able to share our hope with those around us. So our first message in this series was a historical overview, a look back at the journey the church has taken since the very beginning. As we talked about how the church's influence has spread to our world, and though our world is far from all the way Christian, and there's so many people that aren't Christian in our world, the Christian influence is obvious, and its footprint on the world is deep and wide. The church's history tells a marvelous story, undeniable story, how people change the world through a radical love and resilient faithfulness. So when, we, so when we're telling our story, uh, we're telling the story of our faith, the overall story of the church is the ace up the sleeve that we have. It's undeniable. It demands a response when we begin to tell the world how the church went from obscurity and persecuted to being such a powerful force that it is today. Uh, but there's more stories that defend Christianity than just the history of the church. There's more to defend our faith than just the history of our faith institution. As much as it builds the case as to why anyone should take the church seriously, the message of the church, the message of our faith, isn't believe in the institution. As much as the institution testifies to the credibility of our faith, the institution only matters insofar that it invites people to have their own faith. And their faith is not to be in buildings or places like this, but in somebody else. It's much more important. The church's persistence and prominence and impact and influence obviously it gets to people's attention. The church's story will turn heads, but if we're going to turn hearts, there's a more important story to tell. And that's the story of the one who founded the church, the one who built the church, the one who started the church, and that's the story of Jesus. The church's prominence and influence points to Jesus as having made an impact on countless lives. But if we're going to lead people into joining the church, if we're going to lead people into having their own faith, we've got to be prepared to do more than just say, well, look at the church. I mean, hey, it's been around for 2,000 years. You should take it serious. And they should take it serious. You can't deny how deep and wide its impact has been. But every unbeliever and even more casual, half-hearted believers still have a question that we need to be able to answer. And that is the answer to this question. Who is Jesus? If there's a question we have to be prepared to answer, it's this one. And we can't just say, well, let me tell you who Jesus is to me. Because as powerful as our own testimony is, and we'll get there next week, Jesus' story is bigger than just us, and that's why we've got, that he's got something to offer to everyone. His story includes all of us, but his story is not just based on our opinion of him. His story is rooted in God's word, in the history of our world. Peter's confession here in Matthew 16 is the starting point for any of us to do what he's called on us to do in his own letter, to be able to answer, to be ready to answer. But if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we must be prepared to go into detail as to why we believe that, as to why we can be certain, and they can be certain and conclusive, that he is the Messiah. Because Believe me, Peter's confession here is based on conclusive evidence, a lifetime of longing and searching. He came on the heels of generations of people who were longing and waiting for God's Messiah. 
John's gospel records Peter's confession in a little bit of a different way. When many were leaving Jesus, Peter confessed this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Key phrase, we have come to know. So, so the goal for our remaining time is to help us understand how Peter and how the other disciples came to this conclusion. So that when we get asked, who is Jesus? When we get asked, like Jesus asked in verse 15, who do you say that Jesus is? So that we might be able to give our own answer in confidence, just as Peter did. You are the Christ. You are the Holy One of God. I hope that we can arrive at that same place of confidence that they did. One of the other disciples who was right there with Peter as the leading voice of his group is John. John would go on to write his gospel representing the, the voice of all the disciples. And John was, was kind of tasked and kind of requested to articulate in the best possible way, how can we explain to everyone why we believe that Jesus is the Christ, why we believe that Jesus is the son of the living God. So it's on that note, I want you to turn over to John chapter one. John 1 is uh, John, the, the, the Apostle John, he, in his introduction, he kind of explains in very succinct detail uh, why he believes and why Peter and the rest of them believed that Jesus is, was, and is the Messiah that they had been waiting for and why we should take this seriously. Because we're, we're removed from the context. We're removed from Israel and what they were looking for and waiting for. So it's important that we understand what they were basing this, this, this declaration on. And it, again, it wasn't just their personal experience. It was based on fact. It was based on history. It was based on something that God had been waiting to do for ages. So John chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 18 is kind of where the, the gospel really begins as he begins to explain Jesus, the previous part. He's talking about John the Baptist and kind of what God was doing to set the stage. But in verse 14, he puts it this way, and he describes Jesus as God's word, as, as, as God's definitive statement, as God's full revelation. And, and, and as the Jews, they had the Old Testament, and, and to them it was just the Bible because there wasn't anything else. The Jews had the Bible, the Old Testament that we have, and they thought, this is God's word. And John says, yeah, but I've met Jesus, and Jesus is all that we've read about God, all that we've heard about God, all that has been promised by God. Jesus is all of that wrapped in flesh. Listen to what he says. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, set up a camp in our midst, literally. The word became flesh and lived in our midst. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and full of truth. So this is John's way of saying, we have been with Jesus and he's not just some, some part God. He's not just a picture of God. He is the full dose. He is the living, breathing God in flesh. He's full of grace and he's full of truth. He is as if God sent someone to earth in his own image, in his own essence. He is the son of God, if there ever has been one. And again, that's just John's way of trying to describe something that is so abstract and beyond our understanding. But that's the best thing, the best way I think it could be described. Jesus is God's word wrapped in flesh. He's the fullness of God. 
Not just a picture, not just a partial revelation. The fullness. He says, John the Baptist bore witness of him and cried out saying, This is he of whom I have said, He, is, he who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. So again, John the Baptist was kind of setting the stage for Jesus. Verse 16, of his fullness we have received grace for grace or grace upon grace. So this is the, the divine favor, the blessing of God that we have been waiting for and chasing after and trying to figure out how to get a hold of. Jesus has turned the faucet on and we don't see it stopping anytime soon. For the law or the rules were given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. He says this, Moses told us what was right and wrong, but Jesus makes us right and Jesus brings God to us. Moses made it clear to us that we were not like God, that we were unholy, that we were sinful. Jesus is gonna make it to where we can be with God and be like God and have his presence with us always. Moses showed us how religion worked. But Jesus is going to give us a relationship with God. No one has seen God at any time. Now, John is controversial when he says this. Because there's Old Testament stories about people getting a glimpse of God. Moses, right? Abraham, other people. But his, John is going out on a limb saying this, guys. If what they saw, if, if, if what they saw was God, it was such a small point of view. It was such a small peak because what we've seen in Jesus, they did not see anything, anyone like we have saw. They got a glimpse. They got a narrow view through the sliver of a rock, but we have seen him with our own eyes. No one has ever seen God the Son, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom or has been made manifest by God the Father, he has declared him. He has made him known. So John rolls his sleeves up and says, guys, I know some people are going to get mad at me for saying this, but Moses did not see what I've seen. Abraham did not see what I've seen. The prophets did not see what I've seen. I've come face to face, eye to eye, flesh to flesh with God made man. So John gives us the definitive sanctioned word on how the disciples understood Jesus and why they were willing to give up everything for him. And he tells us, Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promises. He's God's word made manifest, God made flesh. He is the God-man. The New Testament presents Jesus as the incarnation of the one true God the culmination of all that God had been preparing up until this point in history. And, and thankfully, we have a very accurate record of the preceding history because it's our Old Testament. The entire first half of the Bible is the history of God preparing the world for the Messiah. Now, most of you know that the Old Testament is basically the history of Israel, the history of the people of Israel, the same nation that's in the news today, that so much of the world's activity has been focused on since the beginning. The Old Testament tells the story of Israel, but before that, it tells the history of the world, the creation of the world, how the world was made to be a good place by a good God, yet sin messed it up and spiraled creation out of control. So God made a vow that he was going to redeem creation, every inch of it, but he would not do so half-heartedly. 
it would take meticulous, patient planning and preparation. God wanted to leave such an impact on the world that the evidence of his love and his presence would be irrefutable. So as the world became populated by dozens of nations with their own way of explaining things, good and bad, God's bright idea was to start his own nation. So God breaks the silence in the fallen world. After centuries of things getting darker and deeper in sin, God chooses a man named Abram out of nowhere. And the history of the Old Testament says that God says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through you, Abraham, people will take hold of a divine favor unlike, unrivaled by anything else. Now, the nation God started through Abram is indeed Israel. Ever since Genesis 12, Israel has been an unavoidable part of the world's story. In our world today, Israel exists against all odds. No nation, no people have faced such opposition and nefarious evil as Israel, yet they persist as a proof of who God is. God's promise to Abram is basically God's way of saying that Israel would be a timeless testimony of God's sovereignty and God's favor, but that Israel would point to something even greater than their own land and their own nation. The blessing he refers to is not just the generalization of Israel's impact on the world, though it's been great. It's referring specifically to how God would use Israel to bring salvation, to bring favor, to bring grace. The grace that John's writing about that's been poured out through Christ, that's the grace, that's the blessing that God's talking about in Genesis 12. He's going to redeem the world through Abraham's family. And through God's promise to Abraham, the pathway to a blessed life, the best possible version of this life would be made available to all, not just the Jews, but to all. So let's zoom out and establish a few details here. God made this promise to Abraham around 2000 BC, so 4,000 years ago. Regardless if you believe the Bible is inspired or anything about Christianity, all these years later, everybody on the planet knows who Abraham was and everybody knows and has felt the importance and impact of Israel. Those are facts that no one can ignore. 2000 BC is when the promises were made and passed down and Moses wrote them down. Again, archaeologists have agreed on this. Historians have agreed on this. Moses wrote these things down around 1300 B.C. Again, almost 3,700 years ago. It's not just a theory. 3,300 years ago. Not just a theory. These are facts. So even if this was made up in 1300 B.C., this was written down before Israel ever became an organized nation. They were still wandering through the desert when Moses wrote this stuff down. Yet it looks like he called a shot, didn't it? It looks like he had seen the future because, of course, God was from the future. God had showed them what was going to happen. If you keep reading the Old Testament, Israel gets into the promised land. They become a nation, and God gives them a king named David. David was handpicked by God, much like Abraham had been, against all the reasons that people shouldn't have believed in David. God used him to make Israel a legitimate nation and kingdom. And it was to David that God revealed more about the redemption plan. God told David that I've got something in store for this world beyond just your kingdom. 
When your days are old and fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now what God was telling David was a kingdom bigger than flesh and blood, bigger than brick and mortar, bigger than land and boundaries. The jurisdiction of this kingdom would reach the ends of the earth. It would be for all people of all generations. Again, the blessing God promised to Abraham was for all people. The kingdom God promised to David was for all people. Israel was the vessel all this is coming through. So again, around 1,000 B.C., 1,000 B.C., so 3,000 years ago, God makes this promise to David. All these years later, David's flag continues to wave around the world, not just in Israel. But we know that it speaks of something greater than just the Israeli kingdom. It speaks of the kingdom that Christ came to build, the church that God built through Christ, Christianity. Abraham and David were major stepping stones on the way to Jesus. So much that when Matthew, another one of the big major disciples, Matthew opens his gospel and look at who he calls back to when he's presenting Jesus to the world. This is the story. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You know those promises God made to Abraham? Those promises God made to David? I'm going to tell you the one man that fulfills those promises. I'm going to show you how Jesus answers the questions we've been asking for ages. Jesus is the way the blessing that God promised Abraham is found in all of our hearts. Jesus is the heir to David's throne, building a greater kingdom. So, when Peter and John and Matthew all say that we have come to know and believe, when they confess that Jesus is the Christ, they are saying, fact check us. We have come to know that Jesus is the Savior we have been waiting for. Because in him we found life like no other under his rule. We found peace and strength that exceeds whatever an earthly king could give us. The Old Testament punctuates the person and work of Jesus, giving us the utmost assurance he is the one and only Messiah. And these men would give their lives away, would give their lives up to preach Jesus to their world. You can read the Old Testament, you can see there's a whole lot more predicted about Jesus than just what we've covered. The predictions are so on point and accurate, there's literally no other way to interpret the passages. Isaiah the prophet gives us this famous prophecy. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel as when he steps into the world, it will bring a presence of God like never before. What did John say? No one has seen God, but hey, I've, I've seen him. No one before me had ever laid eyes on God, had ever walked hand in hand with God, but I and we who know Jesus, we have met him in his fullness Isaiah says that this Emmanuel, God with us, would be God's sign to the world of what he was bringing to us all. Another passage in Isaiah explains why Jesus lived such a short life and how his death on the cross was his most defining work. Again, you're all familiar with Isaiah 53 where the prophet says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brings us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us, the sin of us all. So what was blocking us from these promises? What was blocking us from the blessing of God, the rule of God? It was our sin. And why did Jesus come to die on the cross to be the full and final sacrifice to God for our sins? Down in verse 29, if you have your Bible still open to John 1, John the Baptist introduces Jesus to his world by saying this, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What would block us from the grace and truth of Jesus? Our sin. And what did Jesus come to do to take away our sin? We weren't there to ask him to do it for us. He did it willingly. He did it for us, whether we would accept it or not. So who is Jesus? Why had Peter and James and John, Peter, James, John, all the disciples, Matthew, how could they come to this conclusive place of saying he is the Christ, the son of the living God? Because they had read the book, they had done their homework. They had connected the dots. He's the blessing God promised to Abraham. He's the king God promised to David. He's the sacrifice that the entire Old Testament was waiting for. In him is full and abundant and eternal life. No one else gives us these things that we need so desperately. And we started off today talking about t-shirts and expressing ourselves. I tell you, a lot of us treat our faith like we treat some of our dress code, our dress habits. We keep our faith private and hidden. Meanwhile, we go out into the world and we live according to its rules and we live according to its expectations. We fulfill its demands and we present a version of ourselves that is in line with the world. We keep our faith hidden away. A lot of us, I think, Jesus, I think we believe that Jesus is the source of true blessing. We believe he's our king. We believe he's the victory, the, the, our victory over sin. But the question is, are we living a life that expresses and showcases that we've experienced this? The question comes down on us today is, who is Jesus to you? A lot of people have a lot of opinions about Jesus. But who do you say that Jesus is because there are people in this world today that do not know, that do not know who Jesus is. And we have been called upon to be ready, to be prepared, to tell them who Jesus is. And it's not, well, I think, or we think, or a lot of people think, no, 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 there's none of that. There's no, there's no fogginess. There's no guessing. There's no theories. Jesus definitively and truthfully, accurately, prophetically, we can tell people who Jesus is. But it all comes down to do we know Jesus ourselves? That's the question. Not just who is Jesus to us, but do we know Jesus? Our answers should be, our answers should all, all kind of be the same. Our lives should tell, should answer this question. Our lives should be a living testimony that we know Jesus. So I got a few questions to ask you before you leave. You can write these down, think on them, pray on them. Hopefully you can answer them now, but maybe you need to think a little bit on them. Number one, have you... Have you experienced the blessings that come exclusively 
through following and obeying Jesus. God told Abraham, in you, through you, I'm going to give the world the access and the, the entryway into a blessed life. Through you, through your descendant, through Jesus, the world is going to be or can be blessed. So the question is, as a Christian, or are, if, you are, if you claim to be a Christian, have you experienced the blessings? I don't mean material things. I don't mean, hey, I got all this stuff to prove it. No, 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 that's not, that's not the answer to this. That's not the, the meaning of this. Have you come to know the blessings that are found in following Jesus and obeying Jesus? Does your life exemplify and demonstrate to the world that following Jesus makes life better and following Jesus has made you better at life? If you're following Jesus, obeying him, embracing a life of, of sacrifice and humility, love and purity and devotion, eternal preparation, you know the blessings that come along with it. You know that following Jesus definitely makes life better and makes you better at life and makes you prepared to respond to life in ways that you otherwise wouldn't be able to. If you follow Jesus and obey Jesus, you should be able to testify to people, yeah, knowing Jesus has made my life so much richer, so much fuller, so much better. It is inarguable. It is undeniable. You can look into my life and see, since I followed Jesus, since I met Jesus, I make better decisions. I have fewer regrets. My life is full of his blessings. And no, I don't mean money or things. I mean the things that you cannot buy, the things that you cannot get from this world, the things that no one knows about apart from Jesus. Our lives should be obvious. Our lives should tell that story. We should be able to express it and explain it. So have you experienced the blessings that come exclusively from following Jesus? Number two, are you living as if Jesus is your one and only king? Whose throne do you bow at when you make decisions? You say, well, I got a couple people <laughs> Whose throne? There's one. There's only one. Are you living as if Jesus is your king? Is his throne the one you answer to? Are you honoring his name? And this all ties together. He's a king like none other. He didn't demand his subjects to die for him. He died for us. Entering his kingdom opens your life up to, to better things in every category. But it does require submission and sacrifice. He is the king, not us. He leads the way, not us. He is Lord, not anyone or anything else. Are those sacrifices worth every bit? Absolutely. Is Jesus your one and only king or do you bow at another throne? And, and let me just say this. How we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we spend our life tells whose throne we bow at. How we react to tragedy, how we respond to turmoil in the world, how we react when things don't go our way, that, re that reveals who our king is. Number three, last question. Are you living in the power of forgiveness and victory over sin that Jesus alone provides? If we've come to know Jesus, we will find freedom. That doesn't mean we'll be perfect. That doesn't mean we'll never sin again. But if we do sin and we continue to sin, we will be the most miserable people alive. 
If we come to Christ and know him as our Lord, as our King, we find the desire and the ability to live a bold and brand new life. Are you living in the power of forgiveness? That gives you the ability, that gives you the ability to move on as if guilt does not rule you. Guilt cannot master you. Guilt does not control you. You can move past your sin. You can move on from your past. But the sin that you've moved on from must remain in the mirror. You can find freedom and liberty from through Jesus. He's the only source of freedom. Every other strategy to get free from sin is just moralism. It's trying to do better and you always end up doing wrong again. Only through Jesus is there victory over sin. Listen, I say this, I, I, this, is, this is very blunt. I think we need blunt sometimes. If Jesus has not had an impact on your life, then Jesus is not present and active in your life. If he has not changed your life, if you do not see in him blessings that you cannot find elsewhere, if he is not your king, if he is not your source of victory over sin, then that begs the question, what has he done for you? And I think a lot of us, a lot of us, you know, it's like you walk up to somebody, it's popular to wear, to wear our sports logo, right? Yankees, Braves, Panthers. And you, you walk up to the average fan and you say, hey, you know, who's their starting quarterback or who, who throws the ball? Most people that wear those logos, they don't know a thing about the teams that they pull for. They just wear them because, hey, it's the thing to do. I got shirts in my closet that I don't, I mean, I, I, I'd be a poser if I really wore them out because I don't really know the stuff about, know about the teams or the things. Does, is that kind of how it is for our faith? Because if we know Jesus, we should be able to express and share Jesus. And the proof should be in what he's done in our lives. When Peter and John were arrested when they were trying to figure out who's keeping the church alive when Jesus died or where they thought he died. When Peter and John were arrested, this is what they came to the conclusion. They recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. That's how they determined if they were guilty or not. Our attitudes and actions should all point to how Jesus has changed and transformed our life. That his impact on us should not be some open-ended, personalized question, experience. It's pretty clear-cut. He pours on us blessings. He is our king. He delivers us from evil. We either know him and we're making him known or we aren't. So here's where we leave it today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Now, whether you can articulate that or not, hopefully today has helped you put that into words. Your life is telling that story. Your life, our lives are telling the story about what we think of Jesus, who he is to us. So my, 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 my final things to, to give you is, are you happy with the story that's being told with your life? You can change that story. You, 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 God will give you the strength to change that story. If you're not happy with that story, and you shouldn't be if he's not the one that you find blessing in and, the, find, and, and the, the one that you serve as king and the one that you find victory through, if he's not giving you those things, it's not because he's not made them available, right? So are you happy with the story being told? And, 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 and back to the witness thing. Are you giving people reasons to believe in Jesus? Is your story convincing? 
Or is it easy to say, they don't really know much about him? Our lives are telling a story. May our lives tell a story that gives people reasons to believe. Beyond that, if you're here today and, and you don't know Jesus personally, and maybe you've played church all your life and you've played religion and, and maybe this message has made you realize, I, I don't know Jesus like the Bible says I can know Jesus. There should be no shame in you saying, you know what, I don't care what I've done before. I don't care if I've been baptized. I went to the altar. There should be no shame in you saying, hey, I want to know Jesus like I can know Jesus. I want to have a personal relationship with him. I want to know those blessings. I want to serve him as king. I want to find victory. And if you're a Christian and you've wandered away, you know who Jesus is and you know what he can do for you. And he's right where you left him saying, I'll be the same for you and even more if you come back. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this reminder of who Jesus is. Lord, we wanna be prepared to tell the world about Jesus. But if our own stories are not buttoned up, if we, if we haven't got our own testimony figured out, then we're not prepared to go tell the world about Jesus. So the, the honest, the, 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 the pressing matter in this moment is do we know Jesus like we can know Jesus? And have we been following him as, as if he's our king? Have we been finding in him blessings untold? Have we found victory through him? And if that's not the story that our lives are telling, Lord, would you help? Would you redeem our stories? Would you intervene in our stories? Would you, would you save us from a bad ending? Lord, help our lives to be convincing. Help our stories to be powerful. We want to give the world reasons to believe, but we ourselves have the reason we need to believe. Give us what we need today to live out our faith. Lord, if there's anybody in the house today that's never had a relationship with Jesus and they've never been saved as the Bible defines it, would you show them the way home today? If anybody and everybody, Lord, here today would want to rededicate their life and recommit to following Jesus, following him with a closer desire, would you give them that strength today? to put their eyes on him and not turn to the left or right. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you for your amazing grace. Would you pour it out on us today? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.